Welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet on KDRT 95.7 FM. How do you manage stressful situations? Are you a catastrophizer? Do you have a lot of fear going into stressful situations? My friend Michelle Woodward is here today, and we're going to be talking about managing stressful situations. I'll circle back after my conversation with Michelle. Thanks so much for listening. Michelle Woodward, hello and welcome back. Gosh, it's nice to be here with you. Best part of my day today. Me too. So today we're going to talk about managing stressful situations. I mean, there are just so many stressful situations in life. And it's something that I think we all deal with. Some of us like on a daily basis, maybe. It's just so useful to know how to manage the stressful situations you're anticipating and even when you're right in the middle of them. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you manage stressful situations? Well, first of all, I run and stick my head under my pillow and say, na 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 you can't bother me. That's pretty much my approach. No, I'm just, I'm just really kidding. But what I try to do when, uh, let's, let's talk about the two different things. I'm anticipating that something, a meeting I'm going into is going to be a stressful or conversation I'm going to have is stressful. Um, let's talk about that one. So if, if I know I'm going into some sort of thing that's going to test me and I'm already feeling anxious about it, I need to ask myself, is it knowable how this meeting is going to go? I mean, really, because again, with a hundred units of energy, if I'm putting 90 units of energy on the idea that it's going to be stressful, I'm actually making much more stress uh, beforehand than I might even get in the meeting. So I need to kind of check myself and perhaps throttle back my feeling of stress. And that ask, and asking that question, do I absolutely 100% know for sure 100% that it's going to be stressful? can help me throttle back because sometimes I've gone, I don't know about you, but I've gone into things that I think are going to be so stressful. And the other person says, you know, I've been giving some thought to this and you're absolutely right. And this is the way we should do things like, okay, it's not stressful. That's good. You know what I mean? It's like, thank you. And so I've created that stress in my mind ahead of time when truthfully, we don't know how it's always going to go. What do you think? I I totally agree. I'm really good at catastrophizing. I call that catastrophizing, where I can make it really, really big and scary. And then I go to the meeting (laughs) and I come out and I'm like, oh, guess it wasn't all that bad. Why do you think we do that? Well, maybe because we feel like we're out of control. And so, well, it's going to be, I I would curse here, but I'm not going to. It's going to be a storm anyway. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, um, you know, there's nothing I can do. I, and so I'm, I'm going to kind of give up all control by, by kind of catastrophizing it. Um, I'm going to really reinforce that I have no control. So then I actually have no responsibility either. Um, and I also think some of us, I am one of these people. I like to rehearse in advance 
so that even if it is horrible, I've already experienced really horrible, so it could maybe be slightly better than what I uh, envisioned. I, I do think I, I, I don't want to make light of the fact that it is really critical to role play or to run through a scenario in your mind or a series of scenarios and say, okay, if this happens, what would I do? If that happens, what would I do? So at least, you know, it's like visualizing your ski run before you do it or, you know, the, the ball going into the hoop before you do it. It gives you that confidence. Well, if this happens and I know what I'm going to do, you can go too far with that where you actually, you know, write out a script for everyone and then you're flummoxed because it's not going by the script that you wanted. But I do think it's really helpful to kind of envision the scenario and envision the different ways it could go, but really holding on to the really positive, um, useful, helpful way that it could also go. Interesting. Um, I, I agree with you. I think a lot of times when I do that catastrophizing, there's this, but it's like an internal fear, right? Of will I not be prepared enough? And so I can catastrophize. Whereas if I could just stay out of that energy and think about, okay, what are the different scenarios, you know, and figure it out? I'm actually much more productive going into the meeting. What do you think? I was just rereading uh, Stephen Pressfield's book, Do the Work. And one of the sections of the book, he starts with the, in capital letters, um, don't prepare, um, act, I believe is, I may be paraphrasing, but his whole point is sometimes we over-prepare. We prepare to such a degree that we're actually immobilized by our preparation. So how much better to rest in the idea that I'm clear, I'm calm, I'm an expert in this field, and if I'm not an expert in this field, I'm going to listen to the people in the room who are experts. And this is not a verdict on my worthiness. <laughs> this is not a humiliation and shame moment. This is an opportunity to learn, and I'm already prepared enough. I'm not saying don't prepare, but you don't have to over-prepare. I've had clients who get a job interview Right. So they get a job interview. They get a job interview with a screener and they create a four inch binder of all the materials they may need for that call. When really what it is, they're meeting with the screener and with the screener, all you need to do is be fairly knowledgeable, very engaging, kind interested, interesting, and you're going to get passed on to the next level. So the person, you know, is so focused on creating the briefing book that they can't perform in the screening interview. Have you ever seen anything like that? Yes, absolutely. And I mean, the other problem with a four inch binder, right, is how do you get to that information when you need it? Because there's a lot of information for you to go through. A lot of tabs. You have to have a <laughs> lot of tabs. In that kind of binder. So, you know, I think if you know you're going to have, if you really sit down with yourself and you say, this is going to be a difficult meeting because the person I'm meeting with is all about status, ego, um, bullying, any of that stuff, then you really, I think the other thing to do is to say, I know this is definitely going to be a difficult meeting. What is the one point I want to make in this meeting? And what's the one takeaway I want to get? 
So that, and this comes out of my whole background in politics back before I was a coach. But when you brief somebody, when I, my job sometimes was to brief people before they went to meetings with members of Congress or reporters or that sort of thing, if, if it's really going to be con, uh, contentious kind of conversation, then I want to make one point, not 53, one. And I want to have one takeaway from the meeting, one. Because if it's a really difficult meeting, that is real success if you can do that one thing. So if you know there's going to be people who are against you, it's going to be a difficult meeting, just get it down to the one thing that you want them to know and the one thing that you want to know at, at the end of the meeting so that you can um, not get all completely flummoxed. I've now used flummox twice, just saying. I'm paying attention to my own talking. So going back to your 100 units of energy, I think that's a really important distinguisher for people is, is this how I want to spend my units of energy, worrying about what may or may not happen in this meeting, which you walk into the meeting and you're already exhausted, right? Yeah, right. And, um, and what happens if the meeting gets canceled? Mm-hmm. I mean, I've had that, like, you know, you prepare and you've anguished and you've stewed and you've, you know, spent three days of like, oh my gosh, this is going to be horrible. And then they say, oh, Tony can't make the meeting at three. Can we do it next week? And you look ahead to like another week of agony. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's no bueno. That's not the way to go. The way to go is to control what you can control and let go of the rest of it. And to have that, I want to make this point. I want Tony to know this. And I need to know this from Tony. Um, so you may think of the meeting in one in a particular case. You may think, okay, this is one in a series of eight meetings I need to have. So everything doesn't have to come out in this one thing. It's not all or nothing. It's this is a one of the building blocks in this process or this relationship um, is is really the way to do it. And and I also think like in, um, you know, if it's a difficult conversation you need to have with somebody, if the other person is a really challenged communicator or there's a really something you know it's going to be really tough is to have a third person in the room like uh you know depending on your situation but another peer of 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 the group another um another leader from the organization you know an hr person because sometimes when two people are in the midst of a relationship that's not working it does really help to have a third party who can, you know, facilitate and manage the meeting. Sometimes a jerk is less of a jerk when there's a third party around. Have you ever seen that? Yes. I think having people that are buffers, it can be really helpful. Yeah. That's why we invented couples therapy, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Because the third party, you know, but that can also make what would be a very difficult, challenging, um, sometimes less than purposeful conversation become more purposeful. So why do you think that third person can be helpful? Well, because sometimes in a relationship, I already know what you think about me and it can't go any lower so I can lose my temper. But a third person, I may not want to show them like my seamy underbelly. You know, I'm not speaking of me particularly, but for um, some people with whom it's difficult to communicate, 
um, they won't show another person the thing that they show you. So for the purpose of that meeting, you can actually have a better meeting. For the purpose of the long-term relationship, it's not um, usually doesn't bode well if they can't communicate openly and authentically at all times. Well, don't you think also like when you're going into a meeting and if you bring in that third-party person, right, who just may be a neutral person, but you bring them in, it's it's that support of walking in because you one of the problems of a meeting is you feel very vulnerable. There's uncertainty, there's risk, right? There can be even emotional exposure. So you feel very vulnerable walking into a meeting and just to know like, okay, I have somebody here with me, so I'm not doing this by myself. Don't you think that also helps? Yes. And I think when you work with a bully or a, you know, a dictator, a toxic human being, it is nice to have a truth, you know, non-biased third party, who can say to you, I validate everything that, you know, that this was, I validate your experience, or to have the insight to say to you, I think you're misreading. Mm -hmm. I think you're misinterpreting, because sometimes we get so emotional, and so caught up in our story or our situation, that we can sometimes be blind to something. And so that's why sometimes a third person um, can be really, really helpful. I do think there's a, an aspect of this whole deal that is so important, and that is um, to go into things like this, understanding difficult meetings or difficult conversations, knowing what you do have going for you, you know, knowing where you are an expert, where your um, experience is worthwhile, um, that you have some status in the meeting. Uh, and I know status is a hard thing for a lot of people, but I think about it in terms of the theater. Like if you're in a stage play, everybody in the play knows whether they're a leading actor or a supporting role. Um, one way that actors and people in the theater talk about it is the status. So for instance, if you're doing a play about a family and there's a character who's a, maid, right? The maid has less status. The maid is going to walk in to the scene, not expecting the audience is going to burst into applause unless the maid is a lead character, unless the play is about the maid. I hope this is making sense. So if you, if you know that you're a lead character in this meeting, you know that in the whole sweep of the situation, you're the senior vice president, you're the director, you're the executive director, you're whatever you are, you know, to really own that status. And I, I think particularly for women, it's really hard. We like to have our status, not all women, of course, but many women like to have our status conferred upon us. And it's really difficult to own that we have status because we've made it to the place where, where we are. I'm feeling like your brain is on fire with this now. No, my brain is really thinking about that. Um, it, it, I think it can because well, one is getting past the word status, right? But I understand what you're talking about. But really, you know, owning your your place, owning your um, position or knowledge or voice, that can be really tricky in how we get in the way of ourselves, can't it? Yes, because, you know, and again, when I say women, I don't mean all women. I mean many women. Um, and when I say men, I don't mean all men. I mean many men. 
Um, but many women really do appreciate um, a collaborative, connected experience in life. And so when you go into a difficult meeting, you think it's going to be very much like we're all going to collaborate and we're going to find mutual ground and we're going to come to some sort of solution. And that's great. You know, that's absolutely great. There is sometimes, there are some times when you're a leader though, when you have to take in the input of everybody who's in the room and say, I hear you, I understand what you're saying. As the leader, I'm deciding we're doing this, doing it this way. It can be really challenging for a lot of women because for a lot of women, that means I am now other. I am not in the collective. I'm not in the group. And that can be super unsettling. However, in a difficult, contentious conversation, it is the leader, the person with the most status, who sometimes has to make that hard call, that hard decision. And truthfully, other people in the room are looking for you to to exhibit that kind of leadership. Yes, I think that's so important. Thank you for pointing that out because um, that can be the struggle, right? We want to be with everybody else, but when you are the leader, you have to be brave in that in that period of time and be willing to maybe be different. And by being different is by being a leader, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you have to be willing to stand out. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to be willing to be separate um, and you have to be willing to own your decision. Oh, it's all very brave. Mm-hmm. Owning your decision. Ooh. And that, you know, I think sometimes about boundaries and what I have to um, support a boundary that is established. <laughs> sometimes it's just not so fun to do that, but I know it's important to do that, especially for the long term. And that's the same thing of being a leader is that whether it's a boundary supporting or a vision or it's, it may not be fun, but if you go in and you check in and you and I talk a lot about values, if you go in and check in, is this in line with the values, whether it's in line with my values as a leader in line with the company's values, the organization's values, knowing that the people in the meeting may be upset, but and they may not see the path right now, but it's important to take that stance. Right, because the people in the room may not have all the information you have. Mm-hmm. You know, they they may not have been in every meeting you've ever been in. It gives you insight and experience that they don't have. Um, so in a lot of ways, you know, if you have different experience, you owe it to the group to bring that to the table. I, I do want to talk a little bit about boundaries also because I, I – And we have talked about boundaries in our long friendship. Mm -hmm. But uh, I do think that a lot of people have leaky boundaries. I I had a situation last week. I I must have been last week. It's been a blur. But um, I was approached about a piece of business coaching an executive in California. And the HR person who contacted me, you know, you come highly recommended and I know you've had success in similar situations and here's this person that needs coaching and we'd like to send you to California to meet this person. I'm like, awesome. Like in my mind, I'm thinking, great, I get a free trip to California. You know, maybe I can stay extra days and see people I know and love and Gosh, it would be nice to be in California where Southern California where it's warm and, 
you know, doesn't it sound really groovy that I'm being flown, flown to California, blah, blah, blah. And I kind of went like all off on that Kardashianism of my life. And then I realized uh, later after I had sort of said, yeah, let's talk about it and give me the information that I would be one of three coaches who were being sent to be interviewed by this person. I would have to fly on this Wednesday um, Wednesday, because I don't like to fly the day of meetings because anything can happen and I might be a little strung out. So um, I'd like to fly the night before. So I fly Wednesday. I'd have two 30-minute meetings on Thursday afternoon. And I don't like the red eye either because it, it you know wrecks the next day anyway. So I'd stay Thursday night, fly back Friday. That means I would be three days gone from my business for a prospect and I sort of sat with myself and I thought, you know, you have a boundary. This is your your value is around being efficient. This is inefficient. This is a prospect. If it was a real contract, I wouldn't have a problem with it. But it's a prospect. I could take that time for my business and not get the work. So I sort of sat with myself, readjusted my boundaries, contacted the HR person and said, you know what? It doesn't make sense for me to fly out there. I'm happy to do these by phone call or Skype. And the HR person said, well, I don't know if this person will like that or not. I mean, the other two coaches are being interviewed in person. Okay, that statement could make you shamey. Could, it could make you feel like, oh, then I'm going to like violate my boundary and do what you want me to do. And you know what I said to her? I said... If he prefers to work with somebody that he's met in person, then I'm not the right coach for him. And she came back like two other times in the conversation. Are you sure? Are you sure? I'm like, you know what? I'm very sure. And to me, this is all about boundaries. This is all about uh, honoring my energy, but also honoring my other clients. If I was to take Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday off, that would mean people would have to readjust. And other people would have to change their schedules. And finally, I have other people who pay me that exact amount of money and I don't have to take three days off my work to work for them. That's a, a very good um, process to show people about because, you know, even with the f- fact of what she said could be shaming and how it could trigger you like, oh, I better go do this. But really being able to hold your ground and really going through the whole evolution of being excited. This could be fun, right? And going to California and all of that to, oh, wait a second, let me take a look at this. How would this work with my business? How would this work with my life? How would this work long term? Right. Right. That's, that's yeah. Really, yeah, I think that's really important. I want to go and back to asking you. So boundaries, I think, are very important and have. So anytime you walk into a meeting, knowing your boundaries, knowing what's okay. The other thing is, don't you think sometimes um, we may go into a meeting and think like, oh, I've got to get this all wrapped up. So we may violate our own boundaries and say yes to something before we've really properly processed it. Yes. I mean, I think the hardest thing to do is for people to say, it's an excellent point, something I haven't considered. I'm going to need some time to think that through. Can we set up another meeting to discuss that part? Because we don't we don't train people to do that, but really that's the the most important thing to do is to have the um, 
wherewithal to sort of be like, I, I'm an agenda girl, right? So I never go to meetings unless there's an agenda of what we're going to talk about. And that is, I think, great. I always try to also circulate agendas beforehand so people kind of get a sense, too, of what they need to prepare for. But um, sometimes I can be so agenda-driven that I'm not a good listener, right? I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, we're just on item two, and we have seven items, and we are only only have 25 minutes left. Oh, my gosh, right? Instead, what I should be doing is fully present in that meeting, fully present in what's going on, holding on loosely to my agenda, but still holding on to it and really listening for what is going on here, reading the body language, what is happening with the body language. And if we get through half the things, but we do it purposefully and with intention, then it's still a success. If we have to extend the meeting another 30 minutes to get through all the things on the agenda, then that's a success. But it's a failure when I as a leader or the person who's driving the meeting that I'm so intent on checking things off my list that I'm not really present in the meeting. I'm positive that you've experienced this. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And I think being present is the challenge, regardless whether we get distracted by um, the stories in our head, we get distracted with making sure that we follow that agenda that, and you know, there's always going to be somebody in the meeting that doesn't follow the agenda. Right. Um, but being distracted is so easy and being present is challenging. You know, I was thinking about this yesterday. I don't know why it popped into my head, but I was thinking um, I'm reacquainted with an old friend who we went through a period of time. We just didn't see each other. Now we're kind of reconnecting, which is really great. And I guess I was thinking, how would I tell this person about my work? And I, and I realized I am present for six-ish hours a day probably. And it's exhausting to be present for six hours in a day. The majority of us are not present in my, you know, very non-scientific, you know, experiments. Most of us go through life not being very present to the moment that we're in. Um, And that includes meetings because often we're in meetings where nothing really happens. And so to, as a leader of a meeting or a person who's driving the meeting, I think it's really good to set the intention or kind of start the meeting with, we're here today to do this. You know, we're here today to decide on, create, make. And if you have a meeting and you can't say you have no intention at the outset, do not have the meeting. You know, if you as the leader can't say, I want to walk away with this, or here's why we're having this meeting, then you should not have the meeting. I'm very clear on that. Having a meeting to help yourself feel like you're being busy is <laughs> dumb. It's dumb. Yet there are so many organizations I get brought into or people I work with, they're in like eight hours of meeting a day. Mm-hmm. You can't, If I have a hard time struggling to be present for six hours a day, can you imagine being in eight hours of meetings where you are supposed to be present for the entire thing? It's impossible. And what happens is they start their first meeting at 8 or 8.30 and they end their last one at 6 or 6.30. And then they have three or four hours worth of work to do because they've been in meetings not being present all day long. Mm -hmm. So if I could like be the king of the world, the queen of the world, wave my magic wand and make something change in American work culture is I would change work culture, uh, meeting culture and I would wave my wand 
and say people only have meetings that are purposeful. And if you can get it done in 10 minutes, you can everybody can go back to their desk. Yes, get it done so quickly. I think the other problem with meetings these days is um, all the distractions, having phones and computers in meetings where we can we can look like we're in the meeting, but check out. Yes, and it brings up in mind the... Um, you know, the five behaviors of a cohesive team, which is a fairly new, I mean, it's last 18 months, I guess, maybe two years product, which is uh, associated with the DISC assessment. And it comes out of the work of Patrick Lencioni and his book of five behaviors of a dysfunctional, the five dysfunctions of a team is the name of the book, but they turned around and made it possible. But Lencioni's work shows that what underlies the most cohesive teams, the most cohesive um, even relationships is a foundation of trust. And if I go into a meeting with, well, of course I trust you implicitly, but if you and I were to go into a meeting with other people, um, it would be only a productive meeting if we all trust one another. Um, We trust each other to say what needs to be said we trust each other's motives and each other's um, frame of reference. And we trust that even if we disagree, we're, that's not going to be toxic or, you know, fatal to our relationship. And I, I think we don't go into stressful, uh, all the times we don't think about going into a stressful meeting saying, do I trust the people I am meeting with? And if I trust you, believe me, I'm not going to be on my phone. I'm not going to be playing Candy Crush when you're talking about the financial report. If I trust you, I'm going to be present and I'm going to be listening. So I would say that if you're, you know, thinking about going into a stressful conversation, stressful meeting is to really stop and think, do I trust this person? If I don't, then maybe I need to have that third person involved. Maybe I need to think about why I don't trust that person. Maybe I need to have some trust building stuff go on with that person before I have the difficult conversation. But I do think trust is really key. Uh, Trust is an important foundation. You know, it's interesting because Tony Robbins says that stress is the cover word for overachievers for fear. So if you Hmm. think about not having, you know, people walking into a meeting and being stressed, what are they afraid of? And if they, there's this distrust of people in the room, then that would be that would be an answer to what am I afraid of, right? Right, and really to pay to pay attention to you know why is this meeting creating stress? Why is this idea of the meeting beforehand creating stress as you go into it? When maybe it's maybe it's the distrust, maybe it's um, the lack of power that you feel, or a lack of being in control, um, or like as we talked about earlier, maybe if you're the going in as the leader, this that you're going to step away from everybody else because you will be the leader versus going along with everybody. So really looking at, I think looking at trust, where do you trust yourself and where do you not trust yourself along with where do you trust the person in the room or the people in the room and where do you not trust them? And the worst meetings I've ever been in has been when there's been an elephant in the room. You know, for instance, like, um, I'll just give you an absurd example. Let's say we were having a meeting to talk about how to service a certain client, you know, how, what was going to be our strategic plan to help this client for the rest of the year. And four of the five people in the room know that that client is not, um, not renewing their contract. 
Well, that goes to trust, right? It absolutely goes to trust. But so many times there's an elephant in the room. Like there'll be 12 people around a table. Three of them know that one of the leaders has just accepted another job. Mm-hmm. Meeting is not going to work. And it's going to be stressful. So there's actually a, this little tiny skinny little book I have in my bookshelf. It's called Naming the Elephant. And I do think, you know, it, again, back to your point, it takes bravery to say, I know that we're here to talk about the Framistam contract. But before we talk about that, we really need to talk about Susan's career, career path or whatever it is. I think you do need, somebody needs to stand up and name the elephant in the room. And I found in my, you know, long and storied career, I have found that by just surfacing the elephant in the room first, uh, it kind of minimizes the stress because we're all going to be kind of playing with a full deck. It's hard though. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, um, you know, I don't think, Michelle, maybe you can tell me where I'm wrong, but I don't think that people, if you're running a meeting, do you, do, do people look at, am I trustworthy? You know, am I cultivating trust within this company, this organization, this group that I'm leading? And then, or as a participant in a meeting, are people really looking internally going, do I trust this? Is this a safe place? Do I trust the people there? It may be subconscious, but I do think we all do that kind of calculus and um, and decide, you know, um, someone was telling me a story recently of a senior staff meeting where one of the senior staff people raised with the CEO um, an issue of people working too much. In other words, everybody's pulling 60, 70 hour weeks. And this person was like, you know, they were going through what needed to happen, what needed to happen, all these things. And this one person piped up and said, look, in the context of everybody working 60 to 70 hour weeks, I think this is a ridiculous conversation. And we we can't have that. Um, and in that moment, the CEO decided to tell her exactly where she was wrong and he basically humiliated her, this woman, in front of the entire senior staff. She got up and left the meeting. He doubled down, the CEO doubled down, and told them how, told the remaining members of the staff how inappropriate it had been for this person to say that. Well, right in that moment, that CEO jeopardized everybody's trust of him because he could have made it a safe place for this woman to say that, mm-hmm. but he didn't. Mm-hmm. That is the, that is kind of the, Okay, now I've learned it's not safe in senior staff to raise the truth. Mm-hmm. And that's where organizations um, really fail. The other, I remember, um, do you have something on that? I, I don't want to rush off, but I do have a little. Go. Other. So I'm, I was at a, um, a meeting once, and the guy who was running the meeting was just awesome. He just had a great energy and a great style. And he said, well, let's get this meeting over with quick because everybody's going to want to go out in the parking lot and talk about what they really believe. And so, you know, the idea that a lot of us sit in meetings and we're very passive and we're, we're just basically like storing things up 
And then the meeting's over and we go talk to our people and say other, our friends, and we say what we really think. We uh, let our emotions go. But during the meetings, we're very passive. And I, I think there's also some danger in that from an organizational standpoint or a relationship standpoint, if, if it's not safe for you to say anything to me, or if it's not safe for me to say anything to you, then we aren't really in a trusting relationship. So true. And I, but I, here's what I think about so in some places they want that top down leadership. They're not interested in cultivating trust. They want to use, you know, that power over somebody else, that scarcity over somebody else. Um, to lead, to control things, because maybe they don't want to be vulnerable. Yeah, maybe that's, I'm, you know, leading two workshops tomorrow at a big conference on uh, bullies and toxic people at work. And, uh, you know, the thing is, you can have those kind of authoritative, <clears throat> top-down, um, my way or the highway kind of work environments. They definitely exist. They're also the ones in this economy that we are currently involved in, those are the people who are having a lot of attrition, are having a difficulty of, um, filling their executive teams. They're having a difficulty uh, making their numbers in the long term. You know, you can be a bully and a jerk to somebody and push numbers in the very short term, but in the long term, it's unsustainable. So more and more, as um, unemployment drops well below 5% in a lot of parts of this uh, the United States and also around the world, and of course, there are pockets of people who are not getting employed, and that's an issue. But an aggregate, you know, it's below five percent in uh, in the United States. Then the the bullies and the jerks who think by berating their employees and by um, bullying their employees and um, you know putting them under their thumb that they're going to have sustainable, long term, positive results from that are uh, deluding themselves. Yeah, I do, I do think the leaders that tend in that leadership style, I don't even know if they have the awareness about that, that it it's not sustainable. Um, or maybe but it serves care. their ego in some way, yes. you know what I mean? Which is, I always say to my clients, you, know, you can't fight emotion with logic. You know, if somebody is really, if their ego is involved, you, you can't logic them out of that attachment. You know, Spock couldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is so true. And I, I mean, I always say you have to change the em uh, emotion to change the behavior. Yes. So how, what are, what's the emotional aspect that you can touch into to help change it without using fear or shame? Um, I want to go back to, because we talked about managing stress, right? Managing stressful situations. And one of the things that you started with was asking a great question is, is it knowable how this meeting is going to go? What are some other things that you do as you manage stress going into stress, manage going into stressful situations? Well, I make sure that I, I make sure that I get a good night's sleep. Um, and even if I'm really keyed up and I, and I can't sleep, you know, actually I'm not above taking a sleep aid to get a good night's sleep. I make sure that I feed myself well. Um, you know, I try to get that, uh, exercise that I need before something really stressful because one, it takes my attention off, you know, ruminating over what could possibly maybe tangentially happen. Um, so I try to have all those things in order. I try to be prepared, but not over prepared. Um, I 
remind myself to be absolutely present. And um, if in the course of the meeting, while the meeting's going on, things are really turning south and it gets ugly, I am not above saying, I don't think we're having a very um, productive conversation right now. Can we table it and reschedule for you know, tomorrow or whatever, you know, let me get more information, you get more information, let's come back. And I think that a lot of people don't feel that um, space to be able to end a difficult conversation uh, early if need be, if it, if if it's violating every boundary and you're having a really big stress reaction. What do you do? Um, I too try to get a good night's sleep that may not always be successful, but I also um, don't indulge in the drama of it if I don't, because I still will be okay that day. It's usually the day after. Um, and then exercise is really important. I think partly it just helps get some of that nervous energy out, right? And get mm-hmm. some adrenaline going, eating well, absolutely. Uh, and then, you know, I'm not above myself of, you know, the night before watching Netflix, distracting myself from just the rambling of my thoughts and all the worst case scenarios. The other thing I do is, and I've really had to practice this because like I said earlier, I could be a huge catastrophizer is having constraints about where I let my brain go, right? Like when my brain starts to want to go, Oh my gosh. And it's like, okay, but you're not at the meeting yet. You don't know what's going to happen. And, and I really think about that. And, um, and then the other is as far as being prepared, like knowing again, it goes back to constraint preparing, for the meeting without thinking that I have to do it perfectly and knowing when is and what is enough preparation. So having the stuff that I need for the meeting, I need access to it, but not over preparing. And I think that's where, um, it I'm sorry about important. my dog barking. That's all right. And, and I, I mean, one of the general rules that I typically have is that I don't, uh, do late night stuff like for preparation. I used to, but I don't yeah. do that anymore. Like, so I, I call an end or I don't work on Sunday evenings anymore. So if I have a Monday meeting, I don't do anything. Um, I get all that stuff done ahead of time because going and rested is really important. You know, I think the thing that is popping up in my mind is the difference between clean pain and dirty pain and dog barking. Um, <laughs> the clean pain, you know, is when you stub your toe and you say, ouch, that hurts. Um, and dirty pain is when a week later you're saying, I'm such an idiot. I stubbed my toe last week and it hurt so much. Mm-hmm. Right. And so going into a stressful situation, I can, I can agonize and worry about it for a week ahead of time, but I'm actually turning it into dirty pain when I do that. Yeah. And dirty pain is just, it's very painful. So it is. And, uh, yeah, I, I think having, knowing the clean pain of, okay, well, maybe I made a mistake in this, but not, not going off the deep end and creating, adding more pain to it. That's unnecessary is really important. So, yeah, so I think managing how we, and every, the other thing is, is that a lot of the skills that I have now came about from years of practice, right? The, the idea of, I used to think, oh my gosh, I need to pull an all nighter or, you know, do things late at night or I would procrastinate because I didn't want to deal with it. And, and I just learned that that's not the best of me. The best of me doesn't show up either that night or the next day for that meeting. 
So of having that boundary once again of, no, I'm going to take care of myself the night before and work on getting a good night's sleep and, you know, having exercise, eating well, all of that stuff so that I can go in my best self. So like you said earlier, so I can be fully present, mm-hmm. right? Instead of walking into a meeting going, oh my gosh, I didn't do this or, oh, I should have done this, but be fully present with whatever it is that I have. It's so interesting to me that we do the things that are familiar to us. So for instance, if we're somebody who in school always crammed, you know, stayed up all pulled an all nighter before a test and crammed and and did all that stuff, we kind of replicate that in our working life. And so I've had people who before a meeting, big meeting with a CEO or a big client, or they have to do a presentation or they have to have a difficult uh, conversation, they end up like cramming all night the night before. And so they go in and they're completely exhausted. They're utterly drained. Their mind is a mush because they've tried to put so much information in it and the meeting doesn't go well. And instead of saying, well, my cramming practice is what did not set me up for success. They think, well, I didn't cram enough. And so the next time they do the same thing and it's always a feeling of not enough Rather than kind of going into it saying, I am already enough, what do I have to do to make this meeting go well? And in that, it goes back to trust. Like you have to be able to trust yourself that you are enough, that you know enough, and you are prepared for this meeting. Right. Right. And you really have to tell yourself that. Again, that's not something you're going to really have any external validation about. And to be agile enough that if you're in the meeting and it's clear that it's trending in a way that you aren't prepared for is that you say, hey, you know what? I'm not prepared to talk about X, Y, Z. Um, cause I didn't prepare for that. And I haven't really given as much thought as I'd like to. Can we schedule another meeting to talk about that? I think there is no shame. There's no loss of face. Um, there's no, no downside to, to doing that again, unless you know, you're having a meeting with the Pope or the president and you're likely only to get one meeting you want to try to make, probably make the best of it. But if you're in relationship with these people and the whole conversation is trending away, you're not ready for, you, you owe it to yourself and to them to nip it in the bud. Oh, I really like that. I really, really like that. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for coming on and talking today. And one, one more point that I want to make about when you managing stress full situations is The other thing to do is reach out and connect with somebody who can help, you know, who can either help bring you back to your present. You just feel really good about connecting with another human being, right? Picking up the phone, calling up a friend, a colleague, and, um, and then seeing if that helps you get grounded. If that becomes a practice of yours, wouldn't you say that's a great way to help me manage stress? Yes. And I, I think it's a beautiful strategy and choose somebody who's not hypercritical, yes. you know, <laughs> choose somebody like there are, there are people who just naturally go to critique. Don't pick those people in those instances, pick the people who you know and trust and you know, have got your back and are going to really help you, um, be ready to do whatever it is that you need to do. Well said. Well, thank you, Michelle. Thank you, my friend. All right. So I want to go back to managing stressful situations. What is your practice? And if you don't have a practice, first off, don't beat yourself up. Start developing a practice. You can take 
the different ideas that Michelle and I talked about and try it on and practice it. Now, one of the things I think is really important is that it's not just a one time and you're done or like, oh, it saved you. It's about practicing it and being reflective. So one of the first things that Michelle had said was get really, she didn't use the word mindful, but that's really what she's saying. Get mindful of the stories we're telling ourselves. You know, is it knowable how this meeting is going to go? Is it knowable? Because again, with my word of catastrophizing or living in fear, we can really catastrophize the worst case scenario, but really going in and going, okay, is it knowable how this meeting is going to go? And if you're like Michelle or I, who wants to be prepared for maybe the different scenarios, you can have your different plans. And then remember, it's about also believing in yourself that you are resourceful, that you can figure it out. But without having what she called, and our colleague uh, Martha Beck calls, is the dirty pain, right? Where we, again, it's the catastrophizing. We make it so, so stressful. We add more stress to already a stressful situation. So first off, really going in before you go into a meeting, what is all this rumbling about? On the show, I talk a lot about verbal vomiting, having that place verbally where you can vomit, but it has to have a container. It can't just be on other people. You can't go and offload to your spouse or your kids or your best friend or your mom or your father, right? It's not about offloading your pain, but it's about throwing up verbally in a container, just like you would throw up in a toilet or in a bowl. And that's the reason I use that because it's such a good visual effect for us. For some people, it's not even about verbal processing. It's about writing it down. So you can write it out. You know, Anne Lamont calls it a shitty first draft. Just write out all these things, get it out of your head, the stories that are rumbling through, you know, especially in the dark of night for me, but get it all out of your head of all the things that are creating stress, right? And then I think we lay down a lot of really good points. Things that add to meetings that become stressful is a lack of trust. Trust with the leaders of the meeting, trust with yourself, maybe trust with the colleagues and really paying attention to that. So one is checking in with your own self-trust and paying attention to that because that becomes really important because when you trust yourself and something's not feeling right in the meeting, you can say, wait a second, I really need to think about this. Can we set up another meeting to circle back? Instead of thinking, I've got to give an answer right now and I've got to be the good employee, the good leader, whatever it is. And you make you say yes to something that later is a hell no. Just like Michelle used that example of going to California. While it had been great to see her, for her to be really clear about her boundaries. And she went through those range of emotions. There's nothing wrong with us as we go through those emotions of excitement and, you know, joy and we get to daydream. And then we start to look at, okay, the reality is how does this fit into my life? Is this worth it? For some people, it may be for her situation right now, it wasn't. And paying attention to that. So paying attention first, get all those crappy stories out of your head, asking yourself some great questions like, is it knowable how this meeting is going to go? And reminding ourselves that the verdict of the meeting is not a sign of our worthiness, not at all, right? If it, the meeting doesn't go well, it's not about you not being worthy enough. If the meeting goes well, it doesn't mean that you are now worthy. So the verdict of the meeting is not a sign of your worthiness. And another component is if you don't feel safe, pay attention to that. 
is it possible to have a third-party person go in with you, right? Can somebody go with you to be at your side then where they can help you debrief the meeting afterwards? And you want somebody who can be objective, who's not going to be like, oh yeah, that leader was so horrible and you were so amazing. You don't want a fan friend because that's not constructive, but somebody who can also give you honest feedback. And you have to be willing to have honest feedback, be really reflective. I mean, that's the area that I work with clients on is being reflective, being able to pull things apart, owning their story, owning where they were strong and owning where they got in their own way, where they struggled. Because until we can own our strengths and our weaknesses, we, we can't be as successful as we want to be. And in this situation, it's about being successful and reducing the amount of stress, especially the bad stress. Okay. So having a third party go with you. And the other part is if you can't have a third party go with you, it's also just about reaching out to somebody who's earned the right to hear your story. Maybe that's your person that you can verbally vomit with who they're not going to be hypercritical. They're not going to say, well, you know, you always screw this up. So of course you're going to screw that up. That's not who you need as you're walking into a stressful situation. But somebody who can give you perspective, somebody who can, who just may be calm, who's not going to take on your emotional stress. You don't want to be, go to somebody who's already a stressed out person because then it's just going to fester. The more there's going to be more stress there. So really being deliberate about who are the people on your team. And one of the things that I work with my clients is that, you know, really creating um, teams of people in different arenas. So maybe in the stressful situation of managing, you know, uh, your relationship with your teenage daughter, it may be somebody different than maybe uh, a situation at work, right? Or a girlfriend situation or a relationship situation. We have these different arenas and who are the different team members we have in each of these arenas. And there's nothing wrong with that because there may be somebody that we can go to that may not see who we are as a professional, but see who we are as a parent. And we can say, hey, look, you know, I really messed up with my daughter and I said X. And they're not gonna be like, well, you can do that. Look at your position in the in the world, right? Which is a very shaming thing. But who can say, who can see you for who you are and say, yeah, I know I've done that too, right? So having, having the people and start creating lists of who are these people that are on your team for these different arenas. Okay. And the other thing I think is to be really clear about what it is that you want from them. So if you have a friend who tends to be a fixer, may not be a great person to go to, but a lot of times, a lot of people are fixers. You could say, look, I'm really stressed right now. I just need a place to verbally vomit. You can explain to them what that is. And then just ask them to hold the space for you. Or you can say, you know, I I have the scenario and I'm looking for feedback, right? If you build a container for what your expectations, what you need from them, it really helps the other person. Because if they're like, oh, you just need a place to throw up, I'll just hold the container for you and rub your back as you throw up and say, you know, and ask you what else you need, right? If you want me to think about how can I give you some constructive feedback, that's going to be a different mindset coming from. So be really clear about what it is that you need. And one other thing that Michelle said that was really important, you can't find emotion with logic. It can become so frustrating if clients are like, but there's empirical evidence. You have to change the behavior or you have to change the emotion in order to change the behavior. So if people feel like their back is against the wall, if they feel that they're attacked, if they feel shame and shame is highly personal, you may be a shame trigger without even realizing it because of the stories they may have about you. 
it's going to be really hard because what tends to happen when people are in shame, either they hide away, they approve whore themselves, or they puff up and they start to battle with you, right? So we don't want to trigger that stuff if we want to have an outcome in a meeting that becomes successful. And going back to, then that goes back to the whole not enough. I'm not enough. She's not enough. He's not enough. We're not enough. We all can struggle with that in some aspect of our life. So the more that we can show up into these meetings or into these situations where we are present, we're not bringing in all these scary stories with us and catastrophizing because then nothing that we bring in is very good. So I invite you to be present when you go into these stressful situations. Get grounded in yourself. Get out of the, the, the shame or the scarcity or the fear. And I do really like that with the Tony, Tony Robbins saying of stress is a cover word for fear for overachievers. We say, oh, I'm stressed. I'm stressed. What are you afraid of? Find out about that. Are you afraid that you may lose your job? Really own that and take a look at that. I have a lot of clients who be like, oh my God, I'm going to get laid off or oh my gosh, I'm going to get fired. And when then they really go down to it, they're not going to get laid off. They're not going to get fired, right? But they're, everybody's so worried about that. So pay attention to that. And then when you have that belief, how do you show up in meetings? And usually it's not our best selves. So thank you so much. I hope this show helps you about managing stressful situations. And remember, these are practices that you develop over time. I didn't start like with all of this stuff, but over time I have learned when what helps me at my best and what makes me actually worse. So for me, my guidelines is not to do stuff late in the evening. My guidelines is to try to get a good night's sleep. And notice I said try because that isn't always successful. But if I don't get a good night's sleep, I don't indulge in that drama the next day and be like, oh my gosh, I didn't sleep. I only slept two hours because I also have enough evidence that I can function really well that day, even off of two hours sleep. The next day may be harder, right? But hopefully that stressful situation has moved on or I don't have to have that meeting again the next day. So pay attention. Having people who are on your support team that you can call, you know, having a process of where you can get yourself grounded. If exercise helps you do that, some sort of movement. If it means going on a walk and maybe you're like, I don't have time, I'm too busy, 10 minutes, five minutes. No amount of time is too little, right? And I also do believe for me, you know, at night, in the evening, especially like on a Sunday night, watching Netflix, there's nothing wrong with that, right? Getting myself where I can have be entertained and then that way I can come back to this event at a much fresher place. So I wanna thank you guys so much for listening. And thank you, thank you, thank you for the iTunes reviews. Awaken Yoga, thank you so much for writing a lovely review. Those reviews really help the show. So thank you, thank you, thank you for leaving reviews. And go ahead and sign up for the weekly newsletter at howshereallydoesit.com. And that's a great way for us to stay connected. I love when the subscribers hit reply and send me a short email. Until next time, I'm smiling big for you. She is dreaming, she is drifting, never been so wild.